Mark chapter 6, and, and uh, if you remember last week, we started talking about King Herod, and so I mentioned that it would be a two-part sermon on, on King Herod, and so today is the second part of that sermon. Um, but this is, this is it's, I tell you, it's a, it's a glorious thing to preach verse by verse, because certain things come up, and you're like, you know, I would not pick necessarily to preach on this topic if it was up to me but here we have verse by verse you don't get a choice and so that really is a it's a benefit and and God's people you're getting fed from all the word of God it's not just the pastor that gets to pick and choose you get all the word of God that you're being fed so Mark chapter 6 and today we're going to be in verses 17 through 30 Mark chapter 6 17 through 30 so let's pray I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit to give us illumination and then we'll we'll read this Holy Spirit, help us now. We know that we cannot do it without you. We are utterly dependent upon you, Holy Spirit, for anything that takes place. If anything at all spiritually is going to take place of any worth, oh, Holy Spirit, you have to be the one who does it. So, Lord, help us, oh God. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. So first of all, just to kind of catch us up to speed as far as where we are in in, in the gospel of Mark. If you remember... So this has been, what, two Sundays ago, we were talking about the sending of the apostles. Christ sends out the apostles for the first time. Well, what Mark is doing here, Mark sandwiches this story about John the Baptist in between the sending out of the apostles. And then if you look in verse uh, verse 30 of chapter 6, the apostles gathered together with Jesus. So they come back from being sent out. So I know that was a long time ago, but if you remember, okay, so they're sent out, and in the middle of that, that's what prompts Mark to start telling us about what happened to John, and then after he tells us about John, the disciples come back. So it's kind of one of these sandwich techniques that Mark uses. That's the first thing. Also remember, the preceding stories before even Christ sends out the disciples, you have Christ raising a dead girl, then you have Christ rejected by his own people. And then he sends them out. And so a lot of times, the way people look at this passage in Mark is especially... Now remember who this is written for. It's written for Christians in Rome who are being persecuted. This is, in a sense, Mark telling us, as disciples of Christ, this is what you have to expect. What happens to John is what's going to happen to Christ. John is a type of Christ in his death. If you think about... So think about the, the similarities between Herod and Pilate. Herod, we're going to see, is this spineless guy who doesn't really have any say. He doesn't really want to put John to death, but he 
He's, he's at the mercy at the, in this story of Herodias and, of course, the, the commanders and the kings, the important people. And he's kind of at their, at their mercy, and he's already made this oath. So he's like, man, I kind of have to do it. And if you remember Pilate, when Christ stands before Pilate, the same, similar thing, right? Pilate's like, eh, I wash my hands of this guy's blood. I want nothing to do with him. But I have to do it because all the Jews are telling me to do it. So they're, they're both similar in that sense. Of course, they're also similar because you have the disciples kind of carrying on that work that, that they start. Um, but you have that. But also, we have to realize this, okay? Um, this has already happened. So by the time Mark is telling us this, this is not like happening right now in the life of Christ. This already took place. And now Mark has kind of given us this, this, this hey, this, this happened back here. So I'm going to break this up into three ways, okay? Usually like a, lo- a long narrative like this is difficult to preach because it's kind of like, well, how do, how, where, do you, where do you separate it? How do you break it, break it up? But I'm going to do this, okay? So I'm going to, the structure of this sermon, there's three parts. Number one, the first part is going to deal with the faithful prophet. It's John the Baptist, of course, the faithful prophet. Number two, we're going to look at the new Jezebel. So if you remember Jezebel from the Old Testament, Ahab, Jezebel. Jezebel is like the, the word for any kind of monstrous woman in the Bible or anywhere. This is, this is a type of Jezebel, as we'll see. Number three, we're going to look at the almost Christian, Antipas. Herod Antipas. He's an almost Christian. He's not a Christian. He's an almost Christian. You see it a lot in the Bible. So we're going to break it up in those ways, okay? Number one, the faithful prophet. So look at 17 and 18. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested. And bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. Now, stop right here. What's kind of interesting, James is going to like this historian. Philip, his mother, was Cleopatra. It's kind of interesting, right? So, you remember Herod the Great. Last week we were talking about King Herod. Herod has a son, Antipas. Okay, Herod has another son. Herod the Great has another son, Philip, that he has with Cleopatra. So that shows you, you know, as the gospel is going forth, the gospel, if it's making inroads into the palace of Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great, who one of his one of his uh, one of his mistresses, whatever term you want to use, was Cleopatra. The gospel is advancing in high places. It really is. And so here we have it, though. Okay, so Philip was married to this lady named Herodias. Okay, Herodias initiates this thing, and we're going to see this more when we talk about Herodias as, as a Jezebel. Uh, Herodias initiates this, this, this scheme, this ploy to dump that husband and to join with Antipas, Herod Antipas. But when that happens, in verse 18 it says, For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So John's out here in the wilderness calling out this, this king and, and, and his wife for doing what they did. Now, Josephus says that the reason John the Baptist was arrested, you remember we talked about this in chapter 1, the reason he was arrested, according to Josephus, was because he had such a following, he had such a, uh, an influence on the people of that time that Antipas, Herod Antipas, was afraid of an insurrection gonna, that was going to take place, or a riot. So because he's concerned, he has John put in jail. But you have to remember, these, these are not contradictory Okay, to say that John the Baptist, because when John the Baptist is out here preaching against um, Antipas and his wife, he's making, he's preaching in a political, it, it's, it's politically charged. Because it's one thing, so, so as God's people, right, any kind of illicit marriage is, is, is no good. That's not a good thing. It's against God's law. It's against God's word. And so we would speak out against that. But it's a whole other thing whenever the king or the ruler is actually doing this and, and having this illicit marriage. And so when John the Baptist is calling this out, 
Antipas is taking this as not just a personal grudge against me, but you're, you're on the brink of causing an insurrection because these are Jewish people. And John the Baptist is saying, hey man, what you're doing is ungodly. It's against God's word. And so every, you know, if you're a godly person and you're hearing that, you're saying, yeah, that's right. What's going on with this, Antipas? Why did you marry her? And so he's afraid, so he has John thrown in jail. Okay? Here's the thing, though. This is what Calvin says. And I, I want to, I wanna, when we're looking at this faithful prophet, okay? Let me, before I read this Calvin quote, ask yourself this, all right? Ask yourself this. Is it true or is it not true that in general, in our Christian evangelical climate or culture, it is taboo to preach about anything political? It's taboo to say anything, and I'm not saying is it right or wrong. I, I know, I think, if you're looking at Scripture, you will not find anywhere in Scripture that says, hey, you know, Christians, we shouldn't say anything about politics. You're not going to find that in Scripture. All right, now I get it. You know, there's an extreme that, that you can, like, that's all you talk about. But here's the, here's, the, here's the reality, right? The Bible, in a sense, not only advocates, but it commands us to bring up these, these areas, um, especially political areas, as, as the occasion permits and demands. So, for instance, the, the phrase Christ is King or Christ is Lord, those are political statements. Christ is Lord, especially if you were to say that in the first century, you would, if, if, if you were a Roman citizen, you'd have your head chopped off. If you were a Jew and not a Roman citizen, you'd be thrown into the arena or set on fire. If you said Christ is Lord, why? Because it's a political statement. If Christ is Lord, guess who's not Lord? Caesar, right? John the Baptist, what he's doing here, he's calling out the sin that's in high places. And so this is what Calvin says. Here we learn with what unshaken fortitude the servant of God ought to be armed when they have to do with princes. Pious teachers are not to wink at the faults of princes. Romans 13. Let's turn to Romans 13 for a second. And Romans 13 is oftentimes used as like this thing where it's like, hey, we need to just have this blind submission to whatever the government, whatever the authority does or says. You just got to follow, man, right? They say, hey, you can't go to church. Well, you just don't go to church then. If, if that's what the governor says, don't go. But Romans 13, and then they'll point to Romans 13. Okay, Romans 13 doesn't say that. Look what it says. Romans 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Amen. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Absolutely. Amen. So as God's people, we are called to submit to governing authorities. We're called to submit to the governor's laws. Whatever laws, however, there's a caveat. There's a huge caveat, right? There are exceptions to this. It's not blind obedience. It's not, hey, whatever they say goes. Look at the next part. See, that's usually a problem. We don't, we don't go all the way through with this. Verse 3 says this, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil behavior. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. What does that tell us? That's saying the reason we have authorities is so that those who are not behaving properly will fear them but what happens when it's the opposite right what happens when the good behavior is the one that now you have to you have to be afraid for your good behavior at that point they're disqualified from the office that god has placed them in they're no longer because look at look at the next verse verse four for it is a minister of god to you for good when you know governing authorities are ministers in a sense 
They're ministers of God. That's word for word, right? It is a minister of God to you for good. They are put in place. They are appointed by God to be in the position they are so that they can be a minister for good, not for evil. So to the extent that they begin to be ministers for evil and no longer for good, they're no longer operating or acting in the way that God placed them to act. God put them in place to operate as a menace to those who are evildoers. And look what it says after that. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, says it again, a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. But what happens when they bring wrath on the one who practices good? Right? That's, what, that's, what, that's what's going on here with Herod. That's what's happening in our culture today, right? We don't, have to, we don't have to go too far to realize, hey, that's exactly what's going on. Let's say with our governor in New Mexico. You take the, one of the poorest states in the entire country with some of the worst education in the entire country, with some of the worst, like, health care, everything in the entire country. You know, you need money, right? Well, let's take $10 million and allocate it to murdering babies. At that point, what are we supposed to do? Right? You don't look at it and say, hey, that's just what she did, so we don't say anything. What John the Baptist, what, he, what he's doing, what, what God's word shows, what Calvin says, is that we as God's people are called to look at that and say, guess what? That's evil. That's not right. And we call it out, right? And again, I know that, um, and that's not, by the way, and I, I know I mentioned this before, but it's not just like, hey, you know, we're conservatives, so we're going we're gonna to make sure that we're always calling out the liberals. The politicians on the right are just as feckless a lot of times and just as spineless as the ones on the left. And so if Donald Trump, bless his soul, right? He's the first time in my life I've ever voted was was this last election. And it's always been by conviction. I've always been like, no, these guys are all charlatans. But Donald Trump, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to vote for him. Of course, you know, he lost, maybe. <laughs> but, uh, we, uh, but before that, you know, when he's in office... You know, it's like, wow, he really is, in a lot of ways, doing, doing what he's called to do, right? He's, he's, he's a, but here's the thing. When he comes out and he says, I am the most LGBTQ president that the American, America's ever had, at that point we stop and we say, no, that's evil. We call him to account, right? So it's not just like, oh, it's just the liberals. No, whoever, whoever varies or whoever, whoever um, wavers from the law of God, we as God's people are called to hold them account accountable. Let me ask you this, okay? Let me say this. So so traditionally there are the the four spheres, the reformed view and the biblical view as far as the law of God goes, there's four spheres that that are that are operating that the law of God is over over four spheres of life, okay? Number 1 is the church. And we know that. That's a no-brainer, right? God's word is over the church. Everything we do in this church has to be in accordance with scripture to the extent that it's not it needs to be called out and needs to reform back to scripture. Number 2 is our homes. Our homes must operate in accordance with God's word. So God's word is over our homes. It should be. Number three is individuals, us as individuals. God's word has to be over us as individuals. And that would include like when we go and work, we operate under God's law, under God's word at work and whatever we do, how we interact with people, right? To the extent that it's not, we need to reform our life back to scripture. Number four, though, is the civil sphere. It's the civil sphere. God's law is over the civil sphere. And as all, in other words, the civil sphere can't just do whatever they want. To the extent that they try, they're accountable to God for, for doing that. Okay, and I'm talking specifically the moral law. I'm not talking about bringing it back and, and making, you know, making us follow Israel 
Israel's laws. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the moral law. Um, and to the extent that it's not, abortion is obviously the, the, the main, I mean, thou shall not murder, right? So to the extent that the, 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 the government is saying, hey, not only is murder, we're going to let that pass, but we're actually going to, we're going to, we're going to impose it. We're going to make sure that it's a, it's a real live option for people at that point. Okay. That is no longer in accordance with God's word. Whether it's Trump coming out saying LGBTQ, whatever, right? Okay. That's not in accordance with God's word. Um, and, and of course, with 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 adultery, I mean, right? It's not just these two main inflammatory topics. It's important though, because a lot of times I feel like even mentioning that is just like, no way, man. That's not our lane. That is our lane. That is God's lane. That's our lane as God's people. The only time in the history of the church when the church has retreated and said, you know what? That's not our lane. It started with the Anabaptists in the 16th century. That's not the same thing as Baptists. Anabaptists, but these were the radical guys that were like, you know what? They were basically trying to, um, in a sense, operate as monks, where they just withdraw from everything, and and then it picked up a little bit in the 1900s. But outside of that, I mean, even today, you know, it's amazing. Like John MacArthur, I saw something where where he at the very end of his sermon, he reads this letter calling out Gavin Newsom. John MacArthur would, if you remember at the very beginning of the pandemic, his whole thing was, hey, when the government says shut down your church, you shut down your church. Well, about three months into that, he's like, you know what? This is wrong. The government has no say whatsoever in what we do as a church. And so now he's like on the other, not to the other extreme. I think he's right, right? So he's, he's looking at it, and I think we have to look at it and realize this is not taboo. I know it's uncomfortable, or it can be, perhaps. But at the same time, that's what we're called to do as God's people. We're called to hold our leaders accountable and bring them back to the Word of God. They are ministers of God. They're not ministers of autonomy. They're not ministers of secular humanism. They might want to be that, but they're not. God did not appoint them for that. Although Calvin does say, if God wants to judge a nation... He gives it wicked rulers. But just because they're wicked doesn't mean we just sit back and say, hey, okay, take our heads off. John the Baptist isn't going quietly. He's calling Antipas out, right? Now, here's the thing. Okay, let's let's move on. Um, yeah, let's move on to Jezebel for a second. We'll, we'll maybe come back to this later on if we have time. But Jezebel, okay, the new Jezebel. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Jezebel, it's in the Old Testament. This is 1 Kings. Jezebel was married to Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel, they're some of the, they're, they, these guys, again, they're the epitome. They're the epitome of evil. And they're always used as an example. Like if, if the scripture wants to call someone evil, they say, you're, 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 you're like Ahab, or you're Ahab, or you're Jezebel. Okay, Ahab and Jezebel. Now, if you remember who they were chasing all the time, who's Jezebel chasing all the time? Elijah. Elijah. Now, why is that significant? Because John the Baptist, as we've seen, is a type of Elijah. He even wears the garments of Elijah. He, he preaches, he calls out sin like Elijah. Like there's a lot of similarities here. Well, here's some things that Jezebel does in 1 Kings. We don't have time to look at it, but 1 Kings 18, 19, and then 21, if you're interested. Okay, so 18 through 21 of 1 Kings. Jezebel, though, she's the wife of Ahab, but she destroys the prophets of the Lord. That's 1 Kings 18, 4. If you remember, when, when you remember the phrase when Elijah's out there and he's like, Lord, everyone else has bent the knee to Baal. Everyone else has compromised. I'm the only one left. And God says, no, Elijah, I have 7,000 that have not bent the knee to Baal. He's out there because of Jezebel. Jezebel is hounding him, chasing him, trying to kill him. She's already destroyed all the prophets. That's why Elijah says, Lord, she's killed everybody. He says, no. Right? 
Also, there's a guy named Naboth. This is really cruel. But Naboth, at the very end of uh, 1 Kings chapter 21, Naboth is just some guy who works a vineyard. He's got a farm. He's got a vineyard. He's just doing his thing. But Ahab can't sleep at night because Naboth has some, some property that he wants. So he's like sick. You know, he's like, man, I can't believe it. And she's like, what's going on? He says, well, Naboth's got all this. He's got the vineyard, and I want that land, and I want, you know, I want that. And she's like, you're the king. Why don't you just go get it? He's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. She's like, here, give, let, let me take care of it. I'll take care of it within like 24 hours. It's all, it'll be all over with, and, and, and that's that. He's like, all right, cool. So he gives her access to that basically take over, you know. So she hires two guys to come and bear false witness about Naboth to say that he blasphemed God. Well, once they say that, boom, you take him before the court of those days. And what do you do? You kill him. You have him stoned. So that's what she does. She hires two guys, lies about him. He's taken before the council. He's stoned to death for blaspheming God. Boom. Land goes to Ahab. That's that. Okay. This is a wicked woman. It's a very evil woman. But here's the thing. Okay. It doesn't help that Ahab is weak, right? Doesn't help that Ahab doesn't put his foot down and say, you can't do that. There's another man in the, in the um, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to th- remember Ahab and Esther in a minute. We'll talk about Esther. And then you have this man named, um, not Ahab, um, the, the, the name is, escapes me for right now. Anyways, so, so, so think of this, okay, in verse 17. Now, check out the similarities here. All right, so Herodias, the wife of Antipas' brother Philip, Okay, um, she says this in verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias. It wasn't Antipas that went after John. You notice that? On account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for, for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. So what happens is the prison becomes like this halfway measure for Antipas. Antipas is like, you know what? I'm not going to kill the guy, but in order to keep my wife quiet... And, and, you know, essentially that's what's going on. She's down his throat about it. In order to kind of like appease her, I'm going to take him and I'm going to put him in this jail. That's a holding cell. And in the, in the, in, in these days, 2,000 years ago, it's the same way in England today, by the way. They don't arrest you after you commit a crime. They arrest you. They take you to jail. And then they figure out once you're in jail, they figure out, okay, did you commit a crime or not? So it's just like a holding cell. I've had a lot of friends that have been arrested in England. One guy was arrested for reading the KJV on the streets of some little town in England. He was arrested. He actually lost on the first first, first level. And then they appealed it, and he won on the second level. Uh, but it still happens today. So what they do is they arrest you first. If somebody complains, if somebody, you know, they're like, hey, boom, we're taking you in. And then you get there. They don't say you're guilty. They take you in, and then they try to figure out, okay, what happened, what's going on, and boom, they'll, they'll, they'll let you go after that. Now, John's in jail. But he's not getting let out. But it is a halfway measure. Okay, but Herodias here in verse eighteen or verse nineteen, Herodias had a grudge against him. You see that? That's the key phrase that's going to come back. Okay, um, what's she doing? What, what I mean, what, what's the deal with this? What she is essentially saying is, I know that my marriage cannot be legitimate until John is until his tongue is ripped out of his mouth. Like he keeps talking, he knows. It reminds me of, if you remember John Knox, John Knox was, he's the father of Presbyterianism in Scotland and in, in, in Scotland at that, in those days, um, he was being hounded also by the Roman Catholic Church, days of the Reformation. Well, John Knox, um, what Mary Queen of Scots said about John Knox is this. She said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. 
So she's like, you can take all the armies in Europe, you can assemble all of them together, and they can be coming against me. But you know what I fear more than that? The prayers of John Knox. The preaching of John Knox. He'd go and preach to her, right? What's going on here is very similar. She's saying, I, you know, you can give me all the realm. You can give me the kingdom. You, I can be married to the king. I can, I can be married to the, to at one point, the, the son of Cleopatra. That's not enough if John the Baptist is alive. He's got to go. So she has this grudge against him because he's, he's calling out the sin. Okay, verses 21 through 24 shows this even more so. A strategic day came. What do you mean by strategic? That means that it was almost like she's been waiting for this opportunity. A strategic day came. Herod on his birthday gives a banquet for his lords and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. That's important. A lot of people are around. A lot of influence. Um, 22, and when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, and this is a sensual dance, there's no doubt about it, it's, it's, it's sexual in nature, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests, and the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. So he's looking around and he's realizing, oh, everybody's liking this dance, alright, you know, this is, a, this is a really, this is a good dance and this is a, this is a good way to kind of show my, my, uh, my appreciation and, and of course some of the influence I have, that I have the opportunity to give the dancer whatever you wish, up to half your kingdom up up to half his kingdom now this is just an expression of speech she would have known that he knows that he's not saying you can literally have half of my kingdom the romans would never have gone for that he is a pawn of rome he can't just give out whatever he like land right or or this this he can't give out this kind of authority but it's a figure of speech you say hey whatever you want within reason i'll make it happen so, of course, what she do? She goes back, verse 23, and he swore to, or verse 24, and she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And this is amazing, right? So if you're, if you're in this spot of Herodias and you're asked, hey, you get anything you want, right? You have anything available to you. What do, what's the one thing in the entire universe that you want? And she says the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Not just the head of John the Baptist. Not like, hey, I just, I want this guy dead. She says, no, not just dead. I want to see this guy's face on a, on a silver platter with an apple in his mouth. Something like that, right? I want to see the, I want to, I want to behold, I want to do something as beastly, as ghastly as I can to this man. That's what I want. And of course, this, she, she makes Herodias, or uh, the daughter of Herodias makes a beeline back in verse, uh, verse 25. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. She's tormented by John. She's tormented by the word of God. This is what I was talking about, Haman and Esther. That's the name I couldn't think of, Haman. Okay, Haman is a guy, if you remember the book of Esther, Esther, what goes, what goes on there, right? Esther is, is the, the queen of Ahasuerus. Well, Ahasuerus has this guy named Haman who he promotes and he elevates to be like his top official, number one guy. But Haman goes home and he can't sleep. He's sick emotionally spiritually and everyone all his friends they're like man what's what's wrong he's like I, I, I can't stand it when i leave the palace i go through this courtyard and every day there's this guy named mordecai there and he won't bow down everybody else bows down but this guy mordecai he won't bend the knee what should you do with him he doesn't just say hey let's go kill mordecai what he does is he concocts a plan to go and eliminate every single jew on the face of the earth and then he goes to the king and he says, hey, king, you know, there's these people. They, they hate you. They won't bow down to you. They won't do homage to you. Give me permission to go and wipe them out. And the king's like, yeah, okay, cool. That's fine. 
And so Haman concocts this plan on this certain day. He's going to go and he's going to make sure that every Jew is wiped out. That's where Esther comes in and she intervenes and saves the Jews. That's the kind of, but it shows you, ask ourselves this. It's not just these, these, these tyrants, right? But even within us, it shows you how devastating grudges and bitterness and resentment and all these things shows you how devastating it can be. Man, it can destroy you. It can destroy you. And we see that with this lady. She's, she's, she's destroyed. She's tormented. And then, of course, ultimately, look at the practical consequences of her own bitterness. She nurses it, and then people die because of it, right? Um, but it also demonstrates here that tyrants, if you look at the history of humanity, tyrants cannot stand righteous people. The first people tyrants always go after are usually Christians, if there are Christians there. But anybody, you know, going back to the very early church, or like we saw with Haman, the, the, the church in the Old Testament. You go back, man, tyrants cannot tolerate those who are righteous and those who hold to God's word. Why? Because they know that you can't bribe them. They will not be on board with whatever agenda you want to promote. They won't be on board with it because it violates God's word. And so they have, you know, if you want to call it principle, whatever you want, but they know that. So what do they have to do? They have to, they realize in order for my agenda to advance, these guys have to go. They have to be put down. And it's always been the case, whether it's totalitarianism, communism, secular humanism in the United States, the secular humanism in New Mexico. It's always like, hey, we've got to, we've got to squash these guys first because they're the ones that are not going to let this happen. It always happens, right? So this is a warning. This is showing us, hey, this is, number one, don't be, don't be discouraged. God's people have always been in this spot, more or less, where we have tyrants who are coming after us. Okay? Here's the third part, though, the almost Christian. Let's look at Herod real fast. Okay? Herod's the almost Christian. This is verse 20. Herod was a, look at verse 20. For Herod was afraid of John. Herod was, a, now isn't that something? Herod's afraid of John. John's in jail, man. John's in prison. Herod's the king. How is, why is he afraid? Of, what's John going to do to him? He's afraid of him spiritually, right? In the sense of what John is saying, in the sense of what John is preaching. He's causing him to fear. Felix did the same thing when Paul in the book of Acts goes to Felix. He's preaching. Felix trembles because Paul is preaching the word of God. And the word of God is convicting them. They do have a conscience. You know, the, 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 the most heinous atheist out there has a conscience that has been given to them by God. They can sear it. It can, be, it, can, it can be calloused, yes, but they do have a conscience. John's hearing this. He's convicted. He's afraid, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. But look at this in the next part in verse 20, the, the end. This is what uh, it is speaking of perplexing. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed. But he used to enjoy listening to him. What's up with this? What do you mean he enjoys listening to him, right? What is this about? What does he enjoy about what John is saying? It's kind of like this. Acts, in Acts 17, when Paul the Apostle goes to Athens in Acts 17, he's preaching the gospel there. There's three responses. A group of people look at him and say, you're an idiot. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. They walk off. These are philosophers. These are the high and mighty, you know, intellectuals. But another group, here's what Paul is saying. And they say, you know what? This is really perplexing. This is interesting. I want to hear more about this. They're not Christians. They're almost Christians. It's not the same thing. They're hearing what he's saying. They're realizing that, you know what, this is, a, this is a phenomenal situation. You're telling me that being itself, talking about God, God who is being itself, who is immaterial, God who is everywhere, God who is all-powerful, that, he would, he would, that this God who, who is outside of time would take on flesh and enter into time. 
Right, these paradoxes of the Christian faith. You have a Nazareth, you have a, a, a carpenter from Nazarene, Nazareth, who's who you're claiming is God, and not only did he die, but he's raised from the dead. Like these are phenomenal statements. And this is, I think, what taps into some some let's say like Jordan Peterson, right? Jordan Peterson is an almost Christian. He's not a Christian. As far as I know, right? I mean, he doesn't profess Christ. You can, here's the thing, there's a book out there, and this is where I got the, the, the name Almost Christian. There's a book written by a Puritan in the 17th century called The Almost Christian. And he has eight sermons. And he goes through here. And he's like, there's lists and steps and all these things. And he's showing to be an almost Christian is not to be a Christian. And so here are a few marks that he points out. Number one, well, actually stop there. Look at verse 26 with Herod. And although the king was very sorry, when Herodias comes back and says, hey, my mom wants John the Baptist's head on a platter, John doesn't say, hey, that's a great idea. Let's do it. He's very sorry. Why is he sorry? This is a holy man. This is a righteous man. This is one of God's preachers. This is a Christian. He's sorry. But notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, you know what? I can't do it. No, he goes through with it. So first, mark, one of the marks, and we only have time for, you, for a few. Number one, they're willing to go a while in the things of God, but when hard-pressed or when it's time to count the cost, they back out. So he's willing to listen to John the Baptist for a little while, right? But up to a certain point, there's no commitment. You see this with Peter and Judas, all right? Think about this, okay? They both, because as God's people, do we ever waver in our commitment to Christ? Amen. Right? We do. Of course we do. We we so when you look at it this, you're like, okay, so a Christian never backs out when hard pressed. They always count the cost, and when they do, they're like, yes, let's go. That's not true always, right? In general, we do this, but here's the difference, okay? You have Judas, who when it comes down to it, he looks at it and he's like, you know what? I'm not willing to go all the way through with this, Christ. I'm backing out. I'm gonna sell you out. And then you have Peter. Peter says, you know what? I'm not willing to go all the way through with this. I'm gonna back out. But one doubles down on it. One looks at it and says, you know what? Ends up hanging himself. Peter is over here saying, what have I just done? I, I am called to count the cost. He heard Christ say, you want to follow me? Take up your cross, pick up your cross, deny yourself and come after me. He said, I didn't do it. I failed. I, I, I didn't do it. But what, how does he respond to that? Right? He turns back. He repents. He comes back to Christ. He says, Lord, have mercy on him. And lo and behold, Christ has mercy on him. But that's, that's, that's what's this second heading under. They, they, they go for a while and then they stop. But here's the thing. When they stop, as we often do even as Christians, what happens next? In God's mercy, he gets us back again. He gives us the kick to the pants that we need and we keep going. We repent. We turn. We keep going. That's a Christian. Number two, another mark. They deny the major tenets of the faith. And that's obviously a more, a more obvious one. Number one, like faith alone, right? You say by faith alone, Christ is God. Number three would be like the Bible is infallible. That's a very big one. If someone, you know what, the way to cut through the fog with somebody and say, hey, is this person right with the Lord or not? It's not like all the time, 100%, but it's, it's a really good way to do it. You say, hey, what do you think of God's word? Do you think that God's word is without mistakes? And if they say no... Then you have a problem because you can say, okay, well, who gets to decide what the mistakes are? Where are the mistakes? It becomes arbitrary, right? It's like this. Hey, I think that when I read the Bible, this is kind of what they're saying. The Bible is correct until I start reading it and there's something that kind of bumps up against my lifestyle. That part is a mistake. 
It's that kind of thing. It's really how it is, right? So if you hear, I mean, all the time, like 1 Corinthians 6, it talks about not just, I mean, it, it brings up homosexuality. It brings up all kinds of things, right? But that's the first place a lot of times people will go and they'll be like, oh, that's not, that's not, that's a mistranslation. And you're like, well, you can go back to the Greek. I mean, it's not a mistranslation. What are you talking about, right? So anyways, but that's the thing. They look for loopholes to excuse their sin or the culture sins. Okay, so that's a really big time red flag that we're dealing with an almost Christian. Okay, hell is another one. You go to a Christian, they're like, oh, I'm a Christian until you start talking to me about hell. I don't believe, I don't believe that. Well, you got a problem, right? God preaches about hell. More than anybody else, actually, Christ preaches about hell. So all of these ways, these are signs, these are markers, but Herod Antipas is an almost Christian. He's an almost Christian. Let me give you a few points of application here, okay? Um, whenever we have the opportunity to oppose evil, we as God's people are called to do it. All right? Even if you're like, well, it doesn't personally affect me. It does. If it affects a human being, it affects us because Christ tells us to love our neighbors. These are our neighbors, right? If you're at the, if you're at the mall and you see some guy, you know, you see these videos of someone like just getting beat up or stabbed or something and nobody's doing anything. Everybody's just kind of watching. All right. God's people are not supposed to just watch, right? To the extent that you're now, if you have your kids with you or whatever, that's different. But to the extent that you can help people, let's, let's say like at an abortion clinic, you know, what's going to happen is if, if the city doesn't do anything about this ordinance and there's no ordinance passed to stop abortion in the city, you know, what's going to happen. They're going to bring an abortion clinic to Clovis. And if there's an abortion clinic in Clovis, that doesn't mean we necessarily lost, right? It still, it means that, Hey, what are we supposed to do as God's people? Go to the abortion clinic, right? Go to people and tell them, hey, turn to Christ. Talk to them about the things of God. So as God's people, wherever that sphere is, now even if you like, hey, let's say you work or whatever, don't, don't, don't get fired over this. But it's like, or as far as, you know, if, you're, if, you, if it conflicts with your schedule, you have to work around it. But going to a place is not your only option. We all have social media. A lot of us, if you don't, praise God, stay off of it. Um, but there are other avenues. You text, right? We have ways. Anytime there's evil, and we are in the midst of a culture that's evil. I was listening to uh, R.C. Sproul, and he was talking to like, he said, hey, they used to say our culture was neo-pagan. And he's like, it's not neo-pagan. And you know, Sproul, Sproul knows his history. He's looked in some of these civilizations. He's like, it's not neo-pagan. It's barbaric. Our culture is barbaric. And here's the reality. We living in the midst of a barbaric culture, we are going to have many, many, many opportunities to call out evil. Now do it with tact and gentleness and respect and patience and do it so that we see them saved, right? We want to see them converted. We want to see Christ being glorified. So do it with patience and, 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 and um, not in the flesh. But the thing is, is every one of us are called to... Hey, we're, we're going to be in the midst of evil situations. So God gives us the opportunity to, to, to bring Christ and to do something about it. Um, and if it causes backlash, you know, it did for John the Baptist too. And that's just part of it. When you signed up to be a Christian, if you haven't realized by now, God has called you to a certain amount of backlash. And, and the culture coming against you and people coming against you. Now, don't, I'm not saying to go look for it. There's a difference. But it is true. If you take a stand for Christ in, in a barbaric culture, guess what's going to happen? The barbarians are going to come after you. <laughs> All right? So that's what we have. Number two, though, okay? Um, 
Idolatry of popularity and influence, that's what happened with Antipas, man. Antipas, why doesn't he look at the situation and tell Herodias' daughter, I'm not going to do that? It's because all around him, as we saw, were lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. He was, he was, he was afraid of his status, of his position. If I come against you and say, you know what, I'm not going to destroy this holy man, everybody's going to laugh at me. We had a guy in Lubbock. I'll give you an example. Okay, Peer pressure is a reality for all of us. Especially when you're younger, I was really racking my head trying to figure out, yeah, I, I think we're all still exposed to peer pressure and it's still a real factor. But you, you, y'all remember now that, that we're getting older, some of us, you remember what it was like when you're in your teens? Man, that was, that was hard. Peer pressure is a real thing. So we had a guy in Lubbock. And the poor guy, it's his birthday, just like Antipas's birthday. It's this guy's birthday, and we have, we have some, some establishments, some business establishments with, with women and everything else in Lubbock, north, uh, on the other side of Lubbock. You, everyone knows what I'm talking about, right? And this, this guy is on his birthday. He's a professing Christian. These other people are professing Christians. They're all in college, you know. So these guys think, hey, for your birthday, we're going to take you out here. They had it all planned out. We're going to take you to one of these clubs, one of these joints, right? And so this guy is, is in this spot where he's like, all right, what do I do? Well, this, this guy goes. And then he comes back and he's like, hey, man, what was I supposed to do? And we're like, say no, right? Don't go. Don't get in the car. They didn't like, and we're asking, did they like hogtie you, man? Did they put, like, did they duct tape your eyes until you got in there? No. So this is, this is the thing, though, right? This is a reality for all of us. So... To the extent that we're in these spots, we have, to, we have to look at it and say, look, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care how I'm perceived. I don't care what I lose. But I'm going to stand on the Word of God. I'm going to do what the Word of God tells me to do, period. And Herod doesn't do that, right? Herod, and, and we see that, we see that, that he, he's not in Christ, though. Um, and then lastly, let me say this. Don't be an almost Christian. Don't be an almost Christian. Well, how do you know you're not an, an almost Christian? Well, do you believe in Christ? Do you believe that Christ, when He took on flesh, He went to the cross and He died on the cross for your sin? And then in light of that, have you turned from your sins? Have you turned from, from your lifestyle? Have you, have you counted the cost? And you look, you're like, man, yes, but, right? Yes, I have done that. But man, i got these sins in my life. I've got these things in my life that I'm still working on. I'm trying to work out. Well, so did John the Baptist. So did Paul the Apostle. Right. But the point is, is, are you clinging to Christ? Do you trust in him? Are you walking with him? Do you believe in him? Do you believe he is who he says he is? And if so, by by, you know, by all the with all the power that God gives you, keep going with Christ. But if you're looking at this and you're like, no, you know, I haven't I haven't turned from my sin. I haven't repented. I haven't turned to Christ. I think I think the things of God are amusing. I think they're interesting, like the religious stuff. I like that. But I haven't really committed to Christ. That's an almost Christian. And if you were to die right now, you would, you would go to hell. Because God is a righteous God. And the only way you can stand before God with good standing is if your sins are forgiven. And the, the righteousness of Christ is applied to you. And that's what happens. That's why when Christ says, unless a man is born again, think of this. You can't see the kingdom of God. You know when he says you can't see the kingdom of God, he means you cannot understand. You can't comprehend it. You see certain aspects of it, but you don't close with Christ. So he says you must be born again. So if you're not born again, cry out to the Lord that you'd be born again. You know, you don't have to walk an aisle or anything. Go get with the Lord. Cry out to God that he'd have mercy.
go ahead and pray and then we'll come to the table. Our God, we praise you this afternoon.